Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure, Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel, and I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we are doing Classical Studies 101, The Odyssey, and we're up to Chapter 21. The clock is ticking down. We're coming towards the final chapters. I'm very excited for this. Before we get started and bring in our good friend, Dr. Gary Stickle, if you would be so kind as to leave a lovely rating or a lovely comment on whatever podcast platform you are using to listen to this, we'd really appreciate it. And now, without further ado, the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi, there. Your adoring fans. So, Gary, we're at Chapter 21. I have been, uh, as I've told you, I'm very excited that we're getting towards the end. Uh, why don't you give us a quick recap of Chapter 20 and then launch right into 21. Let's get us going. Okay. Um, just one second. Well, you're so excited for the for the end, you need to take a moment of breath. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 20 uh, ended, uh, and these are, you know, foreshadowing chapters or, you know, uh, chapters building up to suspense for the climax. And uh, between uh, Odysseus and the uh, over 100 suitors that have, uh, you know, invaded his palace and taken it over and are trying to impose themselves on his beautiful wife and queen, uh, you know, Penelope. And so it kind of ends with... uh, uh, an inspired seer or prophet, and his name is uh, Theoclymenus. And uh, so he wails out to the suitors, poor men, what terror is this that overwhelms you so? Night shrouds your head. So what he's doing is referring to an eclipse that is occurring. And so, uh, and he says, the sun blot out the sky. Look there, a lethal mist spreads over the earth. But the suitors reacted to that with uh, peals of laughter aimed at the seer. But, uh, you know, the eclipse is supposedly uh, supernatural and portends, you know, the great event to happen. So, uh, and it's interesting that um, I was trying to figure out uh, when the, uh, this took place. And there was a major eclipse in Greece, uh, you know, at about the right time. That's really interesting. So at the so obviously the 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 tales that we received were told or or written down at a certain time, but they're about an earlier era. So yeah. you're saying in that earlier era, uh, there was an eclipse around that right time. That's it's really yeah possible. around around uh, twelve hundred BC or twelve fifty BC. They're not quite sure. Uh, well, well, we've talked about that. The back the fact that you know so much of this still gets questioned as to whether these events occurred in some form, and it sounds like for both of us, 
we both think, yeah, clearly these were these were heroes. These are based on on, on real beings and real events. Uh, and you just get so many things. You pointed out a lot of times that they talk about uh, the bronze and the bronze and the bronze. I keep being mentioned in this that fit the period it would have taken place in. And then you have something like this. So it is very interesting and uplifting to hear, actually. Yeah, although iron is mentioned in this chapter, but yeah, yeah, they, but they uh, didn't but, they didn't have iron at the time. I think the, the, this took place, uh, and I believe it did take place or something similar. Right, but you you point out that they usually point out bronze most of the time. Uh, Homer does, yeah. Homer, in fact, yes. All right. Yeah. So, um, so anyhow. Um, uh, the version I keep using is Robert Fagel's translation, um, and uh, and he he gives uh, titles to each chapter, and so our book they're called books. I think they're called books again. I mentioned this before because uh, they they probably were scrolls, you know. And so book twenty one, or chapter twenty one. Uh, is entitled Odysseus Strings His Bow, and it's a big event, okay? So anyhow, the chapter reads this. I'm going to read a lot of this chapter because it's very uh, descriptive and, and uh, you know, very moving. It begins, the time had come. The goddess Athena with her blazing eyes inspired Penelope to set the bow and the gleaming iron axes. So she's referring to them as iron axes, but they had to be bronze at that time because the Iron Age didn't begin until later. Right. But you have to bear in mind that Homer was writing in the Iron Age, and so uh, that's why he probably, you know, got that wrong. Um, so she sets the bow and the axes before the suitors, weighing in Odysseus's hall. Um, and then she goes up the steep stairs. She hasn't set the bow yet. I mean, she sets the uh, iron axes. So she goes up the steep stairs to her room, and uh, she gets a key. And interestingly, they had keys at that time to lock their doors. Mm -hmm. And then she goes, makes her way to a hidden storeroom far in the palace depths. So the storeroom is like an armory. You know, it has both... Um, uh, valuable uh, gold and things in it and and weapons okay i think that's interesting that both were kept down there well those are both highly valued i mean you need yeah. your weapons you need the gold obviously it's your store of value store of commerce and then your weapons protect that store of commerce yes so she said there lay the master's treasures bronze gold and and wealth of uh, uh, wrought iron again mentioning iron but there it lay as well, the back sprung bow. So it's a recurved bow. And I made a replica of that for my play, and uh, everybody thinks it's very impressive. And then she also gets the quiver of bristling arrows, shafts of pain, you know, he, he describes it. And this was a, a gift to Odysseus from a good friend and then it goes on to a page of describing the friend and how he gave the bow to Odysseus and all that uh, and Odysseus revered it so much you know it says the great weapon King Odysseus never took it abroad with him 
when he sailed off to war, you know, with Troy in his long black ship. He kept it stored away in his stately house, a memory of his cherished friend. So anyhow, then it explains how she goes to the, the hidden vault or storeroom with an oaken door, uh, door seal, door sill. Um, and, uh, and she inserts the key and then apparently it allows these, uh, it has a, a bolting lock, you know, with bolts that slide, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so she opens it up. Um, and she said, handsome double doors. So it's locking double doors into the uh, storeroom. Um, and then she says, inside the room were chests tall, brimming with clothing, scented sweet with cedar. It reminds me when... When I was in high school, I was in a shop class, and I made a cedar chest, mm -hmm. and it did have a, a nice smell to it. Actually, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and then she says she drew her husband's weapon from its sheath. It had a, a sheath that covered the bow, mm -hmm. as well as the sheath, you know, the quiver for arrows. And then she goes back to the hall, to the her proud admirers with a bow in her arms, the quiver bristling arrows, shafts of pain. Her women followed her, bringing a chest that held the bronze and iron axes. Now, now we're saying her bronze and iron axes, but then later on it says iron yeah. again. So Homer's ambivalent about you know what they're made of, or even the person who transcribed it. Yeah. From, uh, but it's interesting that the image of her with the with the bow and the quivers, it's that she's like she's Artemis in some sense. Yeah. You know, she she goes out like the goddess of the hunt. And yeah. any chance we can shout out Artemis. <sighs> we will do so. Uh, as well as Circe, our patron goddess. All right, sorry, please continue. So then she pauses uh, where a column props up the sturdy roof with one of her loyal handmaids stationed on either side. And she delivers an ultimatum to her suitors. Listen to me, my overbearing friends, you who plagued this palace night and day, drinking, eating us out of house and home. <laughs> I like that phrase. It's a common phrase, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, with the Lord and Master absent gone so long, the only excuse you can offer is your zest to win me as your bride. So to arms, my gallants, here is the prize. Right before you. I set before you the great bow of Odysseus now. The hand that can string this bow with the greatest ease and shoot an arrow clean through all 12 axes. He is the man I will follow. Forsaking this house, where I was once a bride, this gracious house. She turned to Eumaeus and ordered the good swineherd now to... Uh, set the gleaming iron axes. So now she's refraining... You know, Homer's referring to him as iron, you know. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And um, the cow herd wept, okay. And um, and then Antinous, the leader of the suitors, you know, he thinks all this is ridiculous, you know. And he says, yokels, he's referring to the other suitors, you know, fools. You can't tell them these mockish idiots and so on, you know, so he goes on and on, you know. Um, 
no easy game I wager to string this polished bow. So he he sees how prominent, how you know, how strong the bow looks. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it intimidates the suitors because they see how strong the bow is. So deep in the suitor's heart, uh, they were bent on stringing the bow and and shooting through all the axes. But Gary, the- let me ask you: uh, Was Odysseus is he described, or was he thought to have been? particularly large i mean obviously the the point of this chapter is how difficult it is to string that bow how powerful odysseus is uh was it that odysseus was inordinately large the way ajax say was or is it just simply the fact that that bow is for him and he has a particular strength and connection to it well it's um, the answer is sort of both uh he's not tall he's described as you know not being that tall but being very strong okay very stocky and strong, mm-hmm. um, and um, and yes, I think the bow is is probably supernatural since nobody can string it but him. You know. Yeah, it's, it seems it seems so. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, uh, Prince Telemachus, uh, you know, then uh, speaks up, and Prince Telemachus waited in with a laugh. Zeus up there has robbed me of my wits. My dear mother, sensible she is, says she will marry again, forsake our house, and look at me laughing at it for all I'm worth, giggling like some fool. Step up, my friends. There is a prize at issue right before you. Look. A woman who has no equal now in all Achaean or Greek uh, country, neither in holy Pylos nor in Argos or Mycenae. Now, Mycenae is an interesting reference because that's where Helen of Troy is, and she's supposed to be the most beautiful woman in the world. But here Homer's having uh, Telemachus say that his mother's the most beautiful in the world. Well, and as every boy would say, um, what is the relationship? Is There is a relation between Penelope and uh, Helen, correct? No. No? Okay, I thought there was some connection. So they're just, they're just two separate characters. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so anyhow, um, uh, he's, he's telling him, why sing my mother's praises? Come, let the games begin. No dodges, no delays, no turning back from the stringing of the bow. We'll see who wins. We will. And uh, he says, uh, I might even take a crack at the bow myself. And he does. And with that, he leaps his, to his feet, drops his cloak, and so on. And uh, at first, he plants the axes. So he has the axes installed. I think these axes, uh, there's various scenarios for how the, uh, uh, you can shoot an arrow through, through axes, okay? Obviously, you can't shoot it through the metal. Uh, and... Um, I've seen some that say the uh, axe heads were taken off and the, uh, you know, the circular hole that that the shaft's inserted on is, is where the arrows went through. But I don't believe that because those axes would be on the ground. And, you know, how can you shoot an arrow on the ground? I used to be in the archery. So, yeah, uh, I, I, I too. So, yes. I yeah, that's just not possible. And so, um, um I think the axes are planted with their shafts in the ground, 
and, uh, and I believe uh, above the axe blade itself is a circle of metal that they would use to hang the axes on, a, on, on, on a pegs, okay? That's my interpretation. I, mean, I illustrate it that way in the painting. That would make sense for sure. That would make sense. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyhow, the axes are planted, and then he makes and and um, he has Eumaeus uh, dig dig a trench to plant them. So get this: in the palace, in the throne room, is a dirt floor. And I and I think that just indicates that Odysseus' palace wasn't as grand as other palaces like at Pylos or uh, Mycenae. Yeah, that's pretty telling. I mean, that's... Uh... Or at least part of the floor was dirt, so they could insert these axes into the dirt, because it mentions that. Um, and he says he tried them all true to a line, so he apparently put a, a string through them, make sure that, you know, an arrow could pass through them, you know. And then Telemachus takes a, a crack at stringing the bow. And so three times he made the bow shudder and three times his power flagged. So he wasn't strong enough to uh, string the bow. And then Odysseus, who's still disguised as the uh, uh, as a beggar man, you know, with rags on, you know. Odysseus shook his head and stopped him. It, God, God help me, the inspired prince cried out. Must I be a weakling, a failure all my life? And blah, blah, but, and then he says, come now, my betters, and he's being satirical about the suitors. Right, he's being so much uh, stronger I than I right. am. Tried the bow right. and finished the contest. Okay. Uh, and um, so he rests the bow, uh, you know, against a, uh, a door, and he, and and uh, Homer mentions the bow's fine horn. So this bow's a composite. The interior is made out of wood, and the exterior is covered with the horns of an ibex, which strengthens the bow and makes it look very dramatic. By the way, so say that again. The interior is made out of wood. The interior is uh, wood. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm blanking on uh, what kind of wood it would be. Um, mm -hmm. But it's covered with uh, the horn of an ibex, which are long horns. The ibexes right. that were in Greece, and so it's a composite bow that way. And the horn makes it stronger. Okay. Okay. And then he then he uh, he says, "Up, friends!" And Tenoch called, taking over. One after another. In other words, he's telling them to line up, you know, left to right and see which one can uh, string the bow while he's he's telling the steward to pour wine for all of them, okay? And the first man up was Laodes. He picks up the weapon now and the swift arrow. He stood at the threshold, posed it, tried the bow, but failed to bend it. And then he says, friends, I can't bend it. Take it, someone, try. Here's a bow to rob our best of life and breath. So he kind of foreshadows what might happen, okay? And uh, if there's still a suitor here who hopes, who aches to marry Penelope, Odysseus' wife, just, just let him try the bow. And with those words, he thrusts the bow aside. 
again resting the shaft a slant with a bow's flying horn. But Antinous turns to the seer, uh, Leotes, you know, and he and he tells the suitors, you know, you can't string it, you're also weak. We have a champion in our ranks to string it quickly. Hop to it, Melanthius. So he so he tries to string the bow. And uh, but before that, the young men try to limber the bow and they rub it down with hot grease and so on. But uh, it, it doesn't work. And so uh, Melanthius tries to string the bow and, uh, and he, he fails as well. Okay. And uh, so. Uh, And, and so Eumaeus, the uh, loyal uh, swineherd or pig farmer, uh -huh. he, uh, so he tells them, uh, so now he's talking to the suitors. So now I tell you what's in store for you. If a god beats down the lofty suitors at my hands, I'll find you. Oh, no, excuse me. Uh, th this is uh, uh, Odysseus now. Right, right. And he's talking to... And he's talking, you know, to, uh, you know, Eumaeus. And, right, exactly. And, okay. and the suitors. And uh, so Odysseus reassured them quickly, you know. Um, he reassures the people who are, who are in his employ, right? The people yeah, from yeah. his palace. He's yeah. reassuring them that he's, you know, he is who he is, basically, yeah. right? before he approaches the suitors. Yeah, so he's talking to Eumaeus. Uh, it must be on the side, so to speak. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's got them off to the side. He's he's saying, you know, get a little bit like, hey, don't worry, I got this kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So he's saying, uh, I'm right here, home at last, after 20 years of brutal hardship. Now I know that all my of all my men, you too, he's talking about Melanthius and uh, uh, Eumaeus. Um, only you two long for my return. So now I tell you what's in store for you. If a god beats down the lofty suitors at my hand, I'll find you wives. Uh, for both of you, I'll grant you property, sturdy houses beside my own. So he wants to reward them, you know? And he shows them a scar that identifies him as Odysseus because he was gored by a boar, you know, when he's a young, young boy. It's such an odd conceit, though, you know. So Athena changes him, basically makes him look completely different. But he has the scar. Yeah. But it's not like a mask where you can take the mask off and go, you know, it's me. It's He actually has a different appearance. So it's a really weird concept that you have to think about, that they believe, okay, this person who looks nothing like Odysseus is in fact Odysseus because he has the same scar. So it's, I guess, some sort of uh, divine thing that Athena allows maybe the fog or the mist to recede once they recognize who he is. Yeah. Uh, but it's a real interesting idea. Yeah. And um, uh, so, uh, and then Odysseus <laughs> and, uh, gets emotional. And, uh, and as they are too, you know, they break into tears and they throw their arms around their master. 
and just they're kissing his head and shoulders, and so Odysseus kissed their heads and shoulders and hands and so on. But he says, no more weeping. Let's slip back in singly. So they, they go back in. And then he tells Eumaeus, go tell the serving serving, serving women to lock the, the doors. So he wants the doors to the uh, throne room locked to keep the suitors in there. And then... Um, so he's, he's, he's blocking their exit, basically, right? He's, got, he's setting that's up... What, that's what Odysseus yeah. is telling them. That yeah, they, he's, yeah, he's setting up the... Uh, you know, setting up his plan. And so it's starting to unfold. This is the exciting part that I've been really waiting for. Then it goes back about. to uh, one more suitor trying to string the bow. Eurymachus mm -hmm. held the bow, but he failed to bend it. And the suitor's high heart groaned. A black day, he says. But then he tries to justify, you know, not being able to do it. He says, but there's lots of women are left, some in Seagirt, uh, Ithaca, some in other cities. What breaks my heart is the fact we fall so short of great Odysseus' strength, we cannot string his bow, you know. And then Antinous says, today is the feast day of Apollo, the archer god. And so he tells the stewards to pour uh, more wine so they do libations and drink and everything. And he says, uh, let's put the bow to bed and we'll string it in the morning. So he's putting it off. And then Odysseus comes in. Again, he's disguised, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and he's and the king of craft, Odysseus, said with all his cunning, listen to me, you lords who court the noble queen. I have to say what heart inside me urges. I appeal especially to Eurymachus and to you, brilliant Antinous, who spoke so shrewdly now. Give the bow, bow a rest for today and leave it to the gods. At dawn, the archer god will grant a victory to the man he favors most. For the moment, give me the polished bow now, won't you? So I can amuse you all. So he's trying to tell me, yeah, yeah, put it off, but uh, let, let me give you a show that you'll laugh at mm -hmm. uh, you know, by trying to string the bow, okay? Um, and his modest words sent them all into a hot, indignant rage, fearing that he just might be able to string the bow. You know, the, the suitors are getting concerned now, okay? So Antinous rounded on him and dressed him down. And he, and he says, not a shred of sense in your head, you filthy drifter. Not content to feast at your ease with us. Never denied your full share of a banquet uh, ever, you know. So he, he just tells him to shut up is what he's trying to do, okay. Um, and, um, and then Penelope steps in. And she says, Antinous, how impolite it would be, how wrong to uh, deny whatever guest, you know, Telemachus welcomes into his high, uh, into his house, excuse me. You really think if the stranger uh, trusted to his hands and, and with his strength, he strings uh, Odysseus's great bow, uh, that, he, that he would take me home and claim me as his bride? He never dreamed of such a thing. Don't let the ruin the feast for any reveler here, unthinkable, and so on. And um, so, uh, again, uh, another suitor is dressing down, you know, uh, Odysseus, uh, and he calls him, look at the riffraff courting the king's wife. 
uh, and so on. Um, in other words, he's saying we got to string the bow or we'll hang our heads in shame. Right, right. Okay. And so it, it goes on, you know. Uh, and then the Telemachus steps in and um and he and he tells his mother you know go back to your quarters tend to your own task the distaff and loom because penelope would, would weave you know and keep the women working hard as well so he's telling her to go back upstairs as for the bow now men will will see to that but i most of all i hold the reins of power here so in other words he's really uh, stepping up and becoming a, a man of the house man Mm-hmm. You know, where he was unsure of himself uh, before. Well, he's got his dad there now. He's, uh he wants to show his dad he's got the he has the gift. He have, you know has the gift. He yeah, has he's, he's, he's inherited the strength. A, a young prince, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of authority. Um, and so the uh, the swine herd lifts up the bow and everything, um, and takes it to Odysseus, you know, the king. And the suitors are bursting out with an ugly uproar and so on. Um, and then the, uh, basically, the, the, so they mocked, okay? And uh, this is, but Odysseus' mastermind of action, once he handled the great bow and scanned it every inch. So now it's in his hands, okay? And he, he says, uh, like an expert singer, skilled at a lyre and song, who strains the string, with a new peg, you know, meaning on the uh, lyre. Uh, so he looks at the bow. So with his virtue also ease, Odysseus strings the mighty bow. Quickly, his right hand plucked the string to test its pitch. And under his touch, it sang out clear and sharp as the swallow's cry. Horror now swept through the suitors, faces blanching white. And Zeus cracked the sky with his thunderbolt, his blazing sign. So in other words, you know, very dramatic, uh, you know, sequence here, you know? Yeah, it's very cinematic. And then it says, uh, Odysseus snatched a winged arrow, lined it bare on the board, and and, and breath still bristled deep inside the quiver and so on. Setting the shaft on his hand grip, drawing the notch, and both strung back, back, right from his stool. So he's sitting on the stool and he's doing this, because, you know, the... Uh, axe handles would would be about uh, waist high or a little higher, maybe. You know, with long uh, long shafts on the axes. But he sat, aiming straight and true, and he let it fly, and never missing an axe from the first axe handle, clean on through to the last and out. The shaft with its winged brazen head shot free. And so. Uh, so he gives a warning nod to Prince Telemachus, and then Telemachus grips his sharp, puts his sharp sword on, and he clamps his hand on his spear and took his stand by his father in the chair. In other words, they're they're ready for. Uh, yeah, they're ready for action. That's a great setup. Right, ready to kill the suitors. That's a great setup. And that's how it ends. That's that's awesome. That's brilliant. I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, see, this is what's exciting. I mean, just that, I mean, this is, you can see, like we've talked about, 
This is the becomes the template for so many stories for thousands of years. You get that scene where now the guy reveals himself. He's going to have his revenge and shows himself, and now sets himself steady to yeah. fight. You know his you know his partners, his associates come behind him and alongside him. If he's planned it, and now he's ready to go. So that's a great that's a great way to end that chapter. Uh, one thing I just want to say on Penelope and Helen, they're cousins, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, no, that's what I'd asked earlier, the connection between Penelope and Ellen. Oh, okay. They're cousins. Okay, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So when you when they talk about the beauty of Penelope, it's you you basically it's a it's a face-off between relatives. They're obviously a, a family of really beautiful, you know, I guess beautiful women are, are in that family, but um yeah. It's interesting. So, all right, well we've got the setup. We're at the spot where we wanted to be. We're almost there. The action is about to unfold. So, Thank you, Dr. Gary Stickle. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. This has been the 34 Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. This is Classical Studies 101, the Iliad Chapter 21. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you for listening, and God bless. 